Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Panadan, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor and have a healthy mindset for ourselves. Today is chapter 16, week three in my journey through Psych 100 at Queen's University, all about psychopharmacology. So let's get started. Psychopharmacology is a study of how drugs affect behavior. If a drug changes your perception or the way you feel or think, the drugs exerts effects on your brain and nervous system. We call drugs that change the way you think or feel psychoactive or psychotropic drugs, and almost everyone has used a psychoactive drug at some point. Yes, caffeine counts. Understanding some of the basics about psychopharmacology can help us better understand a wide range of things that interest psychologists and others. For example, the pharmacological treatment of certain neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson's disease, tells us something about the disease itself. The pharmacological treatments used to treat psychiatric conditions, such as schizophrenia or depression, have undergone amazing development since the 1950s, and the drugs used to treat these disorders tells us something about what is happening in the brain of individuals with these conditions. Finally, understanding something about the actions of drugs of abuse and their routes of administration can help us understand why some psychoactive drugs are so addictive. In this module, we will provide an overview of some of these topics as well as discuss some current controversial areas in the field of psychopharmacology. Learning objectives. How do the majority of psychoactive drugs work in the brain? How does the route of administration affect how rewarding a drug might be? Why is grapefruit dangerous to consume with many psychotropic medications? Why might individualized drug doses based on genetic screening be helpful for treating conditions like depression? And why is there controversy regarding pharmacotherapy for children, adolescents, and the elderly? As previously mentioned, I'm a student, not a teacher. I am sharing my learning journey as I do research for my book, and uh, hopefully it will help you out. Talking out loud always helps me. <laughs> Introduction. Psychopharmacology, the study of how drugs affect the brain and behavior, is a relatively new science. Although people have probably been taking drugs to change how they feel from early in human history, you know, considering uh, eating a fermented fruit, etc., the word psychopharmacology itself tells us that this is a field that bridges our understanding of behavior and brain and pharmacology, and the range of topics included within this field is extremely broad. Virtually any drug that changes the way you feel does this by altering how neurons communicate with each other. Neurons, more than 100 billion in your nervous system, communicate with each other by releasing a chemical neurotransmitter across a tiny space between two neurons, the synapse. When the neurotransmitter crosses the synapse, it binds to a postsynaptic receptor on receiving neuron, and the message may be transmitted onward. Obviously, neurotransmission is far more complicated than this. Links at the end of this module can provide some useful background if you want more detail. But the first step is understanding that virtually all psychoactive drugs interfere with or alter how neurons communicate with each other. 
There are many neurotransmitters, some of the most important in terms of psychopharmacological treatment and drugs of abuse are outlined in Table 1, which I'll go over in a minute. The neurons that release these neurotransmitters, for the most part, are localized within specific circuits of the brain that mediate these behaviors. Psychoactive drugs can either increase activity at synapse, these are called agonists, or reduce activity at the synapse, antagonists. Different drugs do this by different mechanisms. And some examples of agonists and antagonists are presented in another table. <laughs> For each example, the drug's trade name, which is the name of the drug provided by the drug company, and generic name are provided. Neurotransmitter, the abbreviation, and the behaviors or diseases related to these neurotransmitters. Acetylcholine, learning and memory, Alzheimer's disease, muscle movement, and the peripheral nervous system. Next is dopamine, reward circuits, motor circuits involved in Parkinson's disease, schizophrenia, neonephrine, arousal, depression, serotonin, depression, aggression, schizophrenia. Glutamate, learning, major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. GABA, anxiety disorders, epilepsy, major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. Endogenous opioids, pain, anaglesia, reward. A very useful link at the end of this module shows the various steps involved in neurotransmission and some way drugs can alter this. This is open courseware, so this is all available online. Table two provides examples of drugs and their primary mechanism of action, but it is very important to realize that drugs also have effects on other neurotransmitters. This contributes to the kinds of side effects that are observed when someone takes a particular drug. The reality is no drug currently available work only exactly where we would like in the brain or on a specific neurotransmitter. In many cases, individuals are sometimes prescribed a psychotropic drug, but then may also have to take additional drugs to reduce the side effects caused by the initial drug. Sometimes individuals stop taking medications because the side effect can be so profound. So the drug on this chart, the first one is L-DOPA, increases synthesis of DA, uses in Parkinson's disease, and is an agonist for DA. Adderall, increased release of DANE, uses ADHD, and is an agonist for DANE. Ritalin, blocks removal of DANE, and lesser from synapse use ADHD. Agonist for DANE mostly. RCEPT blocks removal of ACH from synapse use Alzheimer's disease. Agonist for ACH. Prozac blocks removal of 5HT from synapse use depression. Obsessive compulsive disorder. It's an agonist 5 HT. Seroquel 
blocks DA and 5-HT receptors. Use, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Antagonist for DA5HT. And Reba, blocks opioid postsynaptic receptors. Use, alcoholism, opioid addiction. Antagonist for opioids. Pharmacokinetics. What is it? Why is it important? While this section may sound more like pharmacology, it is important to realize how important pharmacokinetics can be when considering psychoactive drugs. Pharmacokinetics refers to how the body handles a drug that we take. As mentioned earlier, psychoactive drugs exert their effects on behavior by altering neuronal communication in the brain, and the majority of drugs reach the brain by traveling in the blood. The acronym ADME is often used with a standing for absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. We will talk about a couple of these to show their importance for considering psychoactive drugs. Okay. Drug administration. There are many ways to take drugs, and these routes of drug administration can have a significant impact on how quickly that drug reaches the brain. The most common route of administration is oral administration, which is relatively slow and perhaps surprisingly often the most variable and complex route of administration. Drugs enter the stomach and then get absorbed by the blood supply and capillaries that line the small intestines. The rate of absorption can be affected by a variety of factors, including quantity and type of food in the stomach. This is why the medicine label for some drugs like antibiotics may specifically state foods that you should or should not consume within an hour of taking the drug because they can affect the rate of absorption. Two of the most rapid routes of administering include inhalation and intravenous, in which the drug is injected directly into the vein and hence the blood supply. Both of these routes of administration can get the drug to brain in less than 10 seconds. IV administration also has the distinction of being the most dangerous because if there is an adverse drug reaction, there's very little time to administer any antidote, as in the case with an IV heroin overdose. Why might how quickly a drug gets to the brain be important? If a drug activates the reward circuits in the brain and it reaches the brain very quickly, the drug has a high risk for abuse and addiction. Psychostimulants like amphetamine or cocaine are examples of drugs that have high risk for abuse because they are agonists at DA neurons involved in reward and because these drugs exist in forms that can be either smoked or injected intravenously. Some argue that cigarette smoking is one of the hardest addictions to quit. And although part of the reason of this may be that smoking gets the nicotine into the brain very quickly, it is a more complicated story. For drugs that reach the brain very quickly, not only is the drug very addictive, but so are the cues associated with the drug. For a crack user, this could be the pipe that they use to smoke the drug. For a cigarette smoker, however, it could be something as normal as finishing dinner or waking up in the morning. For both crack user and cigarette smoker, the cues associated with the drugs may actually cause craving that is alleviated by, you guessed it, lighting a cigarette or using crack. 
This is one of the reasons individuals that enroll in drug treatment programs, especially out-of-town programs, are at significant risk of relapse if they later find themselves in proximity to old haunts, friends, etc. But this is much more difficult for a cigarette smoker. How can someone avoid eating <laughs> or avoid waking up in the morning? These examples help you begin to understand how important the root of administration can be for psychoactive drugs. Drug metabolism. Metabolism involves breakdown of psychoactive drugs, and this occurs primarily in the liver. The liver produces enzymes, and these enzymes help catalyze a chemical reaction that breaks down psychoactive drugs. Enzymes exist in families, and many psychoactive drugs are broken down by the same family of enzymes. The cytochrome P450 superfamily. <laughs> there is not a unique enzyme for each drug. Rather, certain enzymes can break down a wide variety of drugs. Tolerance to the effects of many drugs can occur with repeated exposure. That is, the drug produces less of an effect over time, so more of the drug is needed to get the same effect. This is particularly true for sedative drugs like alcohol or opiate-based painkillers. Metabolic tolerance is one kind of tolerance, and it takes place in the liver. Some drugs, like alcohol, cause enzyme induction and increase enzyme production by the liver. For example, chronic drinking results in alcohol being broken down more quickly, so the alcoholic needs to drink more to get the same effect. Of course, until so much alcohol is consumed that it damages the liver. Alcohol can cause fatty liver or cirrhosis. Recent issues related to psychotropic drugs and metabolism. Grapefruit juice and metabolism. Certain types of food in the stomach can alter the rate of drug absorption, and other foods can also alter the rate of drug metabolism. The most well-known is grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice suppresses cytochrome P450 enzymes in the liver, and these liver enzymes normally break down a large variety of drugs. If the enzymes are suppressed, drug levels can build up to potentially toxic levels. In this case, the effects can persist for extended periods of time after the consumption of grapefruit juice. As of 2013, there are at least 85 drugs shown to adversely interact with grapefruit juice. Some psychotropic drugs that are likely to interact with grapefruit juice include Tegetrol, prescribed for bipolar disorder, Valium, used to treat anxiety, alcohol withdrawal and muscle spasm, and Lovox, used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. A link at the end of this module gives the latest list of drugs reported to have this unusual interaction. Individualized therapy, metabolic differences, and potential prescribing approaches for the future. Mental illnesses contribute to more disability in Western countries than any other illness, including cancer and heart disease. Depression alone is predicted to be the second largest contributor to disease burdened by 2020. The numbers of people affected by mental health issues are pretty astonishing, with estimates that 25% of adults experience a mental health issue in any given year. And this affects not only the individual, but their friends and family. One in 17 adults experience a serious mental illness. Newer antidepressants are probably the most frequently prescribed drugs for treating mental health issues, although there is no magic bullet for treating depression or other conditions. 
pharmacotherapy with psychological therapy may be the most beneficial treatment approach for many psychiatric conditions, but there are still many unanswered questions. For example, why does one antidepressant help one individual yet have no effect for another? Antidepressants can take four to six weeks to start improving depressive symptoms, and we don't really understand why. Many people do not respond to the first antidepressant prescribed and may have to try different drugs before finding something that works for them. Other people just do not improve with antidepressants. As we better understand why individuals differ, the easier and more rapidly we will be able to help people in distress. One area that has received interest recently has to do with an individualized treatment approach. We now know that there are genetic differences in some of the cytochrome P450 enzymes and their ability to break down drugs. The general population falls into the following four categories. One, ultra-extensive metabolizers break down certain drugs. Two, extensive metabolizers are also able to break down drugs fairly quickly. Three, intermediate metabolizers break down drugs more slowly than either of the two groups above. And finally, poor metabolizers break down drugs much more slowly than all the other groups. Now consider someone receiving a prescription for an antidepressant. What would the consequences be if they were either an ultra-extensive metabolizer or a poor metabolizer? The ultra-extensive metabolizer would be given antidepressants and told it would probably take four to six weeks to begin working. This is true. But they metabolize the medication so quickly that it will never be effective for them. In contrast, the poor metabolizer, given the same daily dose of the same antidepressant, may build up such high levels in their blood, because they're not breaking the drug down, that they will have a wide range of side effects and feel really, really bad. <laughs> also, not a positive outcome. What if, instead, Prior to prescribing an antidepressant, the doctor could take a blood sample and determine which type of metabolizer a patient actually was. They could then make a much more informed decision about the best dose to prescribe. There are new genetic tests now available to better individualize treatment in just this way. A blood sample can determine, at least for some drugs, which category an individual fits into, but we need data to determine if it's actually effective for treating depression or other mental illnesses. Currently, this genetic test is expensive and not many health insurance plans cover this screen, but this may be an important component in the future of psychopharmacology. Other controversial issues, juveniles and psychopharmacology. A recent Centers for Disease Control report has suggested that as many as one in five children between the ages of five and 17, may have some type of mental disorder. <laughs> Example, ADHD, autism, anxiety, depression. The incidence of bipolar disorder in children and adolescents has also increased 40 times in the past decade. And now it is estimated that one in 88 children have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Why has there been such an increase in these number? There is no single answer to this important question. Some believe the greater public awareness has contributed to increased teacher and parent referrals. Others argue that the increase stems from changes in criterion currently used in diagnosing. Still others suggest environmental factors, 
either prenatally or postnatally have contributed to this upsurge? We do not have an answer, but the question does bring up an additional controversy related to how we should treat this population of children and adolescents. Many psychotropic drugs used for treating psychiatric disorders have been tested in adults, but few have been tested for safety or efficacy with children or adolescents. The most well-established psychotropics prescribed for children and adolescents are the psychostimulant drugs used for treating attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and there are clinical data on how effective these drugs are. However, we know far less about the safety and efficacy in young populations of the drugs typically prescribed for treating anxiety, depression, or other psychiatric disorders. The young brain continues to mature until probably well over age 20, so some scientists are concerned that drugs that alter neuronal activity in the developing brain could have significant consequences. There's an obvious need for clinical trials in children and adolescents to test the safety and effectiveness of many of these drugs, which also brings up a variety of ethical questions about who decides what children and adolescents will participate in these clinical trials, who can give consent, who receives reimbursements, etc. The elderly in psychopharmacology. Another population that has not typically been included in clinical trials to determine the safety or effectiveness of psychotropic drugs is the elderly. Currently, there is little, very little high-quality evidence to guide prescribing for older people. Clinical trials often exclude people with multiple diseases, conditions, etc., which are typical for elderly populations. This is a serious issue because the elderly consume a disproportionate number of prescription meds prescribed. The term polypharmacy refers to the use of multiple drugs, which is very common in elderly populations in the United States. As our population ages, some estimate that the proportion of people 65 or older will reach 20% of the US population by 2030. With this group consuming 40% of the prescribed medications, <laughs> it is quite clear why the typical clinical trial that looks at safety and effectiveness of psychotropic drugs can be problematic if we try to interpret these results for an elderly population. Metabolism of drugs is often slowed considerably for elderly populations, so less drug can produce the same effect. Or all too often, too much drug can result in a variety of side effects. One of the greatest risk factors for elderly populations is falling, which can happen if the elderly person gets dizzy from too much of the drug. There's also evidence that psychotropic medications can reduce bone density. <laughs> Although we are gaining an awareness about some of the issues facing pharmacotherapy in older populations, this is a very complex area with many medical and ethical questions. This module provided an introduction of some of the important areas in the field of psychopharmacology. It should be apparent that this module just touched on a number of topics included in this field. It should also be apparent that understanding more about psychopharmacology is important to anyone interested in understanding behavior and that our understanding of issues in this field has important implications for society. Yes, the statistics are staggering on the consumption of medication in both the elderly and in adolescents. 
Well, if you're enjoying the show, share it with someone you know or a fellow student or someone who's interested in this topic. And hey, maybe a thumbs up or a subscribe would be greatly appreciated because I'm here to help our global community develop a better understanding of human nature, of how to lift yourself up, because as you just heard, a lot of people out there need a little boost, right? So I'm wishing you a wonderful day, and I hope you live an inspired life.